This podcast is brought to you in part by the estate of Bob Nelson. Bob was a lover of all things San Diego and a longtime supporter of Voice of San Diego and its podcasts. We at Voice of San Diego are honored to have his support during his lifetime and continued support through his estate planning. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Welcome to the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and editor-chief at Voice San Diego, and I'm joined, as always, by managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafania. What is up, Lopez? Hey, Lewis. Education reporter Jacob McQuinney joins again. What's up, Jacob? I'm doing all right. Coming up on the show this week, the Union Tribune has been sold. The local newspaper is now on its sixth owner since 2009, and this one is the most feared yet, at least by some. It's a huge shakeup in local news. We'll explain what we know and don't about the economics of news and what this could mean for San Diego. And former Mayor Kevin Faulkner finally announced it. He is running for county supervisor in 2024. He's trying to keep another Republican out of the race to try to oust Democrat Tara Lawson-Reamer from the board. Meanwhile, the special election to replace Nathan Fletcher on that same board of supervisors is almost here. There's a lot at stake, but you are forgiven if you have no idea what the county actually does because nobody seems to, and that's why we're here. Finally, many school boards across the country have grown more toxic since the pandemic, but San Diego Unified has been strikingly unified. Jacob here will explain his reporting on the district's uncanny unanimity. That's all coming up. Stay with us. So you guys know me as me now, right? <laughs> okay, where's this going? <laughs> but you you would have liked me, I think, in 2006 or 7. <laughs> well, we don't like you now. <laughs> no, I think you. we would have been more friends then. Okay. Yeah. I, I was when? R- around your age, 2006. Okay. Um, and so in that time period, like, Voice San Diego was new, and we were really, we were kind of feisty. Like, it was kind of a, I, I used to be a lot like harsher and more interesting, I think. <laughs> but um, one of the things we had was this pretend sort of rivalry with the UT, right? Like mm-hmm. we we wanted to take them on so hard. You know, it's it, you should never punch down. You should always punch up, right? Mm-hmm. And we always just saw them as like the, the Goliath. A lot of us had like tried to get jobs there and they had no interest in us, that sort of thing. <laughs> so it was and, just like a feisty group of rejects yeah. trying to take on the, the big guy. <laughs> right. Huh? And so by like 2008, like when we got these, a lot of national attention for some mm-hmm. of the work we're doing for the news nonprofit model and how we were disrupting and providing alternative ways to deliver investigative journalism, there was a lot of attention on us. And every, I felt bad actually about this, but every story about us would include like a line that would say like, and they're doing so well because the Union Tribune is falling apart or whatever, <laughs> having all of its troubles. Ooh. It was, and the people there sometimes got a little mad about it. Mm-hmm. So there was like a period of a good four or five years there where there, it was hot. Like we were, we were really getting after each other sometimes, or at least in my mind we were. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but they would, whenever they would, so a long time they wouldn't recognize any of our reporting. They wouldn't, they would say sometimes in their editorial, like reportedly this or stuff like that. But then when they would, when they would actually uh, reference us in their stories, they would say, they would have all kinds of ways of describing us, like a, a nonprofit website or an online news gathering service it was just always all over the place which was partly our fault for not defining it well but also like it was just also this we perceived it as a way to like kind of you know diminish what we were doing a little bit website that just feels like shade or yeah blog came up sometimes that sort of Uh, thing and yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, and so we (laughs) did you ever email them 
No, no, <laughs> we, we did it better. So every time we started referencing the Union Tribune, we would say, <laughs> we would say like, according to a report in the Union Tribune, a local newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so it was getting real wow, petty. Wow, super petty. <laughs> and we, we would make ourselves laugh so hard about that every time we put it in there. And people would get mad. They'd be like, that looks so immature. And I'd be like, why? It's a local newspaper. But um, that's Where's how, the lie? Where's yeah. the lie? Okay, so this is like the, oh, this is the compliant uh Oh, I'm forgetting the phrase now. Mal- malicious this compliance. Is, yeah, this is malicious compliance like yeah. you're talking about, huh? Well, so, sort of. It's a version of malicious yeah, compliance. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, uh, you know, we're just <laughs> describing it. But the idea that you need to describe an entity itself is diminishing to that. You could just yeah. say Voice San according to Voice San Diego or whatever. But if you have to add yeah. like a descriptor, what they are, you're also implying that people don't know what it is, <laughs> which was true. I, I suppose it was fine, but it was just so awkward and interesting. Anyway, I've, I have a long, complicated relationship with the Union Tribune. And, and this week, when the news broke that it was being sold once again to now its sixth owner since 2009, all of us were buzzing because this had a lot of interesting implications, right? So uh, I don't know exactly where to start, but I think we should start with just the basics. One is uh, the Union Tribune was owned by... Patrick Soon Shin and his family. Patrick Soon Shin uh, was, uh, had purchased the Union Tribune as part of a package deal that he got the LA Times with in um, 2018. And uh, when that happened, there was a lot of happiness about it, at least at the UT and in other places, because the UT had been owned by Tribune Publishing, and Tribune Publishing was going through a really weird phase where they, were, they had renamed themselves Tronk, I don't know if people here remember <laughs> Trunk. I do remember Thank the Trunk you. era. It's 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 pretty embarrassing. It's like when you We gotta pull that Trunk clip. Because change is mandatory, but survival isn't. Because newspapers are printed on light, and the world's largest newsstand is your phone. Because brilliant journalism and jaw-dropping technology can now share a newsroom, there is Trunk. It means mediums change, but the substance remains. It's, yeah, they, there's Tribune online content. That mm-hmm. They had this this vision for a new way of, of connecting people to news that was really kind of fell flat, didn't go well. Trunk feels like the branding version of when you look back at your high school yearbook and see like your emo <laughs> haircut or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Like choker. So the, exactly. There, there was a lot of concern at that time that Tribune Publishing was going to sell the papers to... Alden Global Capital, and in particular, the company that Alden runs called Media News Group. Now, that is the company that Monday, Patrick Soonshin and his family announced had purchased the Union Tribune from them. We do not know for how much. And immediately, they announced the news to the newsroom, and thus it went out on the interwebs. And then uh, they announced that they were going to be doing some pretty severe cutbacks and asked for um, people who might be willing to step up and take a buyout. Uh, so their plans became clear. I think a lot of us had been interested, uh, what was it, about two months ago, a month ago, when the LA Times announced their own layoffs, that there would probably, it seemed odd that there wasn't a discussion about San Diego at all at the time. Yeah, we were all kind of like asking or sort of waiting to see right. if we would yeah. hear something and... Yeah, there definitely was a feeling like, is this shoe going to drop for yeah. the UT? Well, it seems like the shoe was going to drop, but was probably held by this news, and that's what they've been pulling out. So now, I think a lot of people's reaction has been to Alden mm-hmm. and the news about that. Now, Alden is well-known as a sort of vulture private equity firm. At least that's what they, uh, they described it, that Atlantic has a wonderful story digging into what the company did when it purchased the Chicago Tribune. Mm-hmm. And how it just kind of stripped everything down. There's, but I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. There's, Alden is the only group actually buying newspapers now. They've laid off fewer people than Gannett has. But I do think this is a really sad story. And I think in particular, it's a sad story because of what Patrick, Patrick Soon Shin represented for the UT. Now, you worked at the UT. I did, yeah. Well, he was owner. I actually remember the first time that, um, 
I met with someone because they were getting me to apply to their community reporter job. Yeah. Um, it was like one of those moments where you're going to meet someone for coffee and you like pull out your wallet and you're going to pay for yourself. And uh, the person was like, oh, don't worry about it. Like a billionaire is paying for it. <laughs> and I, I laughed so hard. It was like such a funny thing to say in the moment. But I think like. Oh, somebody at the UT was purchasing for you. Was buying coffee for me on the expense that, mm -hmm. you know. The billionaire was paying for it mm -hmm. and i think like in when i worked there it i don't think he ever visited the newsroom when i was there maybe he did but i don't think so um but there was this like promise or a feeling of you know like everything was going to be okay and towards the end when i was leaving you know there was more talks of we you know, we have to look at the future and what we're going to do with the paper. Do we keep printing it every day? Do we, you know, slowly cut back on printing the actual paper and mostly focus on online? Um, but yeah, I mean, just like being a young reporter, I think like all the other reporters talked about the different owners that they've gone through and how, you know, this was a different period for them and it wasn't like any other period. Yeah, let's track it back. So the Copley family owned the Union Tribune for decades and decades, right? There's uh, this one of the classic newspaper families. Uh, Copley had uh, a lot of money, they did really well, but around the beginning of the century, like they started struggling like most newspaper companies did. Uh, they had a newsroom uh, in, 2000, in 2006 at 406 people. Wow. wow. So now there's just uh, about 200 in the entire company, about 100 in the newsroom. So, uh, Copley sold to uh, Platinum Equity, which was a, another sort of equity firm. You know, they known for cutting and kind of right-sizing um, these operations. They did cut. Uh, they brought in the new editor, who's still the editor and publisher, Jeff Light. They uh, cut, cut, and they kind of balanced the UT. There was a period of stability. They did at their they they would feel like they did their job. They sold it to Doug Manchester, who was very controversial. Uh, he's a developer. Now, he clearly just wanted the real estate, but he also had a lot of visions about San Diego, about mm -hmm. politics that he tried to implement. Uh, Jeff Light survived through that. Then he sold it for a profit, kept the real estate, and sold it for profit to Tribune Publishing. Tribune Publishing went through its own just crazy kind of uh, lurching and just trying to figure things out. Tronk came up. <laughs> then they sell it to uh, a stockholder in Tronk, the Patrick Soon Shin, who's the Richest man in, in LA is a doctor, but he invented a lot of biotech devices mm. and other things that make you a billionaire. And he is the one who had this. Now, when he purchased the UT, he made an appearance in front of the staff, uh, in front of the 200 people gathered at the headquarters. And he said, quote, you now have stability. He said that the 150-year-old uh, publication will not be the ignored stepchild of the Los Angeles Times. Now, I don't like to say people lied about something that comes in the future because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe he intended that, but that turned out to not be true. <laughs> like you said, he you never saw him, right? No. Not that you're always going to see a newspaper owner, especially not in the main headquarters, but his presence wasn't something you felt, right? No. Other than this reference that he's a billionaire. And, yeah, and then like little references here and there about what LA Times was doing and, mm. you know, what he was doing, but never, yeah, never anything like that. Andre, was there a sense that 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 reporters at the Union Tribune, that editors, that, that the whole staff, did, that they felt that there was supposed to be the stability? That Did they feel that there was some sort of, larger hand of an owner guiding them through this weird fiscal transition? I would say so. Hmm. I, I think it did feel that way. I mean, I don't know. I can't speak for like everyone. Yeah, but that's fair. It, it certainly felt that way, but it also like at the same time you're watching the LA Times like hire a lot of people hmm. and, you know, we weren't necessarily hiring a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, like the LA Times did build a new headquarters. Yeah. They they hired a ton of people, a lot of new products came out. All of none of that happened at the UT. Mm -hmm. And and also none of the sort of he got in, in a little bit of hot water at some point where he was trying to or his family was trying to meddle with the paper a little bit. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a classic newspaper drama. 
Uh, there was also a lot, just like every newspaper faced during the pandemic and the protests that was going on about diversity and the history of the paper. Mm-hmm. There was just a lot of tension. And he was swimming in that. He had a lot of perspective on L.A. He didn't seem to care at all about San Diego public <laughs> affairs. Yeah. And which which I'm sure the paper appreciated, like they could do whatever editorials and whatever perspectives they wanted but that wasn't his priority at all yeah mm-hmm. i think the only priority was us following la county health rules <laughs> yeah you were saying that like the, he made you like if if they still had the mask mandate you guys still had to yeah. even if it changed it was super strict That's i remember uh working in the office with a colleague and it was this was like after well during covid sort of after and we were the only two people on an entire office floor in downtown. And we were expected to wear our face masks the entire time. And they had separated people's desks so you would be a desk apart from each other. So you'd be like more than six feet apart. Um, and I remember I was just like, oh, this is so hot. Like I can't. And I took it off for a little bit. And then um, someone who would come around to check was <laughs> like, put your mask on. I was like, wow. Christ. See, that would be a moment for malicious compliance where you're like, <laughs> fine. And you like snap it into place. I, well, I was like, I'm drinking water. Yeah. <laughs> Put it back on. So um, I think that in the UT's uh, editor and publisher, Jeff Light, gave a an interview to Luis Cruz. So the, what would you call him? Like he's like a community he's liaison. A, uh, yeah, public relations does like the PR stuff for the newspaper. Right. So Cruz asked him, is the paper profitable? And he said, yes, it is. And then he said this, and I think it's a really interesting quote. He said, so there are some newspaper companies that are sort of dissolving the franchise as they go forward and harvesting money out of the business to send profits to their owners. That is not what's going on in San Diego. We're very fortunate to have a strong staff and a really enlightened ownership. Now, obviously that's that looks a certain way now because if you look at the the if you were to list the companies he's referring to there as the companies that dissolve the franchise and harvest money so, to send profits to people uh, aren't who aren't there you would put Alden at the top of that and and there's no I don't I don't I bet you if you asked him at this moment like who he's thinking of that's who he's thinking of <laughs> and so now that's the company who's in charge that sort of drives home what we're talking about here mm-hmm. but let's put this in context for a second the, the UT is going through something that every newspaper is going through which is that they are all marching toward a cliff which is when their revenues finally cross down go down enough that they cross over the point where it's no longer worth it for them to print the daily newspaper every day and distribute it to everybody's home or to everybody's who subscribes home right yeah and that is an important moment because they get so much of their money and so much of what does make them profitable from that print product there's still a lot of people who advertise in that print product now there's a lot of people out there going like ha ha go woke go broke you know like you 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 obviously lost your your connection with readers. There is no evidence at all that newspapers like the Union Tribune and others aren't being read or valued in the same way that they were. the The problem is that they got their money from advertisers, and now all the people that come online just simply do not represent as much money to them as they used to. And the advertising instead has gone to places like Google and Facebook and all those other places that can give them better metrics on how those advertising (laughs) dollars are spent and and how effective they are, right? Mm -hmm. And so all that advertising money has gone away and they're all marching toward this same cliff. And I think what, what Light describes in this interview and others is that they are trying to build a bridge to the other side of this canyon. The Mm -hmm. cliff's coming how are they going to get to the other side? The other side is digital revenue, subscribers in particular. And they need to get enough subscribers to make sure that they can sustain a newsroom when they're on the other side of that. That's what every newspaper in the country right now is doing, is trying to do. And I think what Patrick Soon Shin represented was the owner sort of making sure that they had the resources and the stability, like he said, the hope to go through that process. And I think if you're trying to identify like a problem here or a villain or a moment or the real tragedy, that's the tragedy is that the guy who's supposed to steward this transition for you left. Mm -hmm. He abandoned it. It's like right when 
you know, you're supposed to launch a business or something, you walked away or it's, it's, that's what's so interesting. And that's the hard part. So I, I kind of bristle when people are like talking about Alden, Alden Capital, because yeah, they, they do have a bad reputation, but this is what they are. Yeah. The, 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 the guy who was supposed to shepherd this through handed it to them and, and walked away from this really, I think, historic endeavor to try to make that transition work. Because if they don't succeed at that, I mean, think about what that means. They're, they used to have five reporters covering education, five reporters coming South Bay, stuff like that. Now they have one reporter covering education, one reporter covering South Bay, and those are still important. And you lose that kind of like core coverage of a certain area, and you're going to feel it in a public affairs environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's less like going back to your original point where you were like, he said he was going to do this and, you know, flash to the future, he didn't do it. I mean, it's not a lie. It was, I mean, you know, we don't know what he was saying in the moment, but it wasn't that he was a lie, but it's like you're falling back on on a promise that you made to someone. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of a betrayal, I would feel, if I worked there still. Yeah, ultimately, you can't really fault Alden you can't really fault a shark for just like being a shark. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're swimming out in the ocean and the shark sees you and it's hungry, it's going to take a bite. But you can fault like your mom for throwing <laughs> you into the ocean to the sharks, you know. Uh, you know, one thing I've been curious about is is why do you think through all these ownership changes, Jeff Light has been a constant? And do you think that he's likely to 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 continue into Alden's you know, ownership of this organization? That is a great question. I actually think it's an under-discussed story how well he has survived through all of these different people. The, when Doug Manchester purchased the paper, you know, he had this, he had the CEO he hired, John Lynch, John Lynch Sr., mm. who has a very robust <laughs> conservative <laughs> mindset. And it's 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 not just conservative, like uh he's no Rockefeller conservative. Yeah. Right? He was but he also had this like visions for stadiums and stuff like that that they that they really wanted to see reflected in the paper. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the under discussed stories is just how well Jeff Light managed that moment and uh, and others other managers at the paper because there was a tremendous amount of pressure on them to really redo their outlook to fit with this um, with this vision. And he kind of contained that to the editorial page. So you have like Carl DeMille right now, who at the point at that time was running for city, running for mayor. Mm-hmm. They um, wanted to support him. They, they endorsed him, but they put the endorsement on the front page as like a wraparound of the front page of the paper. Wow. So it went out to everybody's house as like a wonderful campaign advertisement to like everybody's front page. But they they worked really hard to make sure it was clear it was like the editorial or to try to make it clear that it was just the editorial board, not the real paper. Mm-hmm. And they, they, you know, I've argued with them a long time that you can't really make that distinction very well. Like the paper yeah. endorsed him, like the paper sent out his picture on the front page <laughs> to everybody's house in the community. But it was still, they, he, you know, he was able to kind of maintain enough of the credibility and, and, and during that moment that it was it was pretty impressive how he and then when they sold it everything changed again and he was in a completely different environment but that was then there was another owner and now there's another one and it's just like uh and to be able to survive that and and he ended up not just becoming he was the editor-in-chief but then he became the publisher as well so he's in charge of the entire business operation Mm. um so i think that that is an interesting story about this ongoing like um you know management saga yeah, I think we're all just like on the more personal side. I mean, obviously I worked there and so I know a lot of the people that work there and, um, you know, whether you're blaming Alden or you're or blaming Patrick, I think like it's just really sad to see this and, you know, it just makes me really nervous for the people who work there and it's really, I can't just, I just can't imagine how they feel right now and what fears they have for their future. Yeah, I, I think um, uh, that's the big question. Like, right, what, who takes the buyouts? What do they do after that process is over? What beats, what um, parts of the uh, operation are are lost? And, mm-hmm. and so that's what we're all waiting for. But I think, I think at the heart of that is this discussion, like, do they continue that endeavor to transition the newsroom and the public service they do to the future or do they um 
or 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 is that is that now like crippled in a way that that could be you know obviously terrible yeah yeah sending sending all the best to all the homies over at ut well i've gotten tons of calls since monday and obviously it's a you know it's awkward it's not like i'm a proven expert at running a news organization like you we've had trouble everybody's had troubles and it's it's hard I do think there is one big thing to keep in mind is that every news organization that produces journalism of a high quality of a public service nature needs to get its money from people who value it. Now, the UT is working primarily on subscriptions to do that. You have to pay to access that journalism. That's one way. The other way is to ask people to donate. Both ways are are being explored robustly across the country and pushed robustly. Ours happens to be mostly the latter and you know asking people to support it at their uh, what they see is is fit but that that needs to happen and i do want to point out a lot of people are like oh this is you know this is nobody cares about the news this news is old dinosaurs gonna fall this is not an expensive endeavor okay we could cover every part of san diego with well-paid journalists and editors Every sort of major corner of San Diego, mega neighborhood, you might call it, or school districts, all that stuff. You could do that for 10 to $15 million a year. The way I would break it down, you know, um, add a, a few dozen new reporters in these different areas. And not that one news organization should do that. I'm just saying, like, in general, that would be the challenge. That is, that is not that much money. There are, you know, uh, like playhouses and theaters and operas and other places that run, you know, far uh, higher burn rates than that. And you could convert people to donate out of that 100,000, 50,000 people, that sort of thing to make it come together. So I don't want anybody to be out there being like, well, this is just a fundamentally flawed model. There's no way to pay for journalism. There is a way to pay for journalism. The The question of whether the UT can can catch up and re you know realign everything it does to fit that or not is is still a big one and I think an important one. Whether we can reach our potential and step up to do more, KPBS and others, iNewsource, that's all a big question, but it's not impossible. There is capital out there to do that, and we just got to figure out if we can access it. Uh, I did write a column about this. You can read at vosd.org slash Scott. That's vosd.org slash Scott. I got this mailer from... Uh, Richard Bailey the other day so he's the mayor of Coronado Mm -hmm. and and then I got another one I think about a month later and it was uh it was all about him and uh, a a comeback for San Diego that he wants to see happen deal with homelessness is it still like he's very awesome yeah he's looking out over the distance and the, the the mailers are just about him and how great and need to recover so you go to a website that they ask you to go to and it's a video that starts and it says our local government is failing the san diego region they're ignoring us it doesn't have to be this way i'm coronado mayor richard bailey and i'm committed to helping san diego make a comeback right and And the website's not like richard bailey for no it's just it's just him it's just like san diego comeback right you know i think more people should engage in self-love in this way though i (laughs) i I certainly do yeah (laughs) andrea and i could put up good websites about how great we are right you guys gotta teach me some lessons (laughs) (laughs) yeah don't we already do (laughs) so so he was running for something now he did he went to climb mount everest and he came back and uh, it seemed like he was probably going to run for the seat occupied on the Board of Supervisors by Tara Lawson Reamer. Now, it's the area that covers the western part of the county, the the coast stretching down from Encinitas all the way to Coronado. And he uh, clearly had his eye on that. We'd heard a lot of rumors about that. But when he got back from Mount Everest... Another Republican, Kevin Faulkner, had shown up and shown interest in gotten polling done about his own possibilities in running in that race. Now, the the district is still pretty heavily Democratic, but it also is the reality that very few people know what the county does or even know who the county supervisors are. And they do have a better understanding of who Kevin Faulkner is. He did uh, run the city of San Diego as the mayor, but he also ran for governor. That didn't go very well. 
But he, you know, it's a lot of name recognition. His name's out there. His name is out there. <laughs> you know who Kev is. So he, uh, there was a lot. One of my specialties I really enjoy is is uh, backroom Republican deal making. Yeah. And uh, so I asked uh, Richard Bailey about um, Faulkner running and... He said this, he said, it's clear to me that the regional problems we face from homelessness to crime to the unaffordability of housing is due to years of bad policymaking. I don't have confidence that current or former regional leaders are up to the task of addressing these issues in a meaningful way. That's that's some That's like two dings, right? It's a ding to Tara, current, and to Kev. It's a little little bit of like a civic carpet bomb. (laughs) In San Diego, that is a full frontal attack. Yeah. That is a, a a brutal, savage stabbing. So, so, how has Kevin done? So, Kevin, this was all the moment where they're trying to get Bailey to leave, and Kevin's trying to step up. And I'm not sure that Bailey has agreed not to run. But this week, Kevin Faulkner announced that he is running for that seat, and he had this to say about why you should trust him in that role. We need to dramatically increase our shelter capacity. And the county has to fund that. The county has to have the political will that says we are going to make this happen, particularly in the area of mental health services that are so important to do that. We were able to dramatically change the situation in San Diego while I was mayor. It takes political will, it takes leadership, and it takes somebody who's going to say it's not enough to just talk about it, you actually have to have results. We drove those numbers down while I was mayor. We, work so we were able to dramatically change the situation in San Diego. Now, let's just rewind for a second. In 2017, the homeless crisis, when the mayor was well into his term as mayor, Kevin Faulkner, the homelessness crisis had gotten so bad that uh, disease, hepatitis A, had started to spread among the encampments and was causing deaths at an alarming rate and it was uh, became a public health emergency a prelude to uh to um public health crises as we came to know them he um was so shocked by the and in particular by our reporting the civic establishment and others were really launched to do some work were um pressed to do some urgent work to address this crisis and he developed what we actually did call the Faulkner Doctrine about the, the crisis, that he said, basically, we're going to try to stand up as many shelters as possible, these large tents and other places where people can go. And um, we're also going to step up the enforcement so that they have to go to them. So we'll uh, spread it. So there were 694 tents downtown. And then after um, you know this sweep, there were um, I'm sorry, there were uh, like 1,100 tents downtown. And then after the sweep, there was about like 700. Like there was a big change mm-hmm. over that period, and in large part because you of the sweeps and the the tents that he put up. Now you there was a lot of detractors that said all you've done is spread it out throughout the county, whatever. But that's what he relies on when he says that he addressed it when when other things he ran for governor largely on that premise that he was the one among all mayors in california who had figured out the right way to address this can you remind us how you know kevin the falcon faulkner how how he did in that governor's race he ran as part of the the recall right Mm -hmm. so they had to first recall the governor and then the next step was to pick who should take his place and he did not do well in that next step even though the recall itself also did not do well mm-hmm. so he did really poorly <laughs> just to get that clear like <laughs> yeah. he, he did really poorly in san diego too so but he um he did he does have this now Arlie Halverstadt did some work at that time to like analyze, did he really make a big deal and big change here? And there was uh, an amelioration. There was an improvement in the numbers. Uh, you could see on street homelessness, something like 10% on um, actual like people counted in there. It was about 4%, while other places did see an increase. Now, there was a big change to methodology during the time. The people who do those numbers say do not compare them to each other over this period. It didn't stop... Faulkner and Faulkner's team from doing that, but they did have, they didn't see a massive spike. And there is a moment where he leaves office 
And the spike does go up. And we just saw the latest point in time count, and it is just horrifying. Now, is that because of him? Is that because of cost of living and COVID and everything screwed things up so much more that it got worse? It, the, the, that's obviously the big debate, but that's what he hangs his hat on. So he wants to run for uh, Tara Lawson Reamer seat. Now, Tara has some fighting responses to that. <laughs> She's like, good stuff. well, she told me once, she's like, well, if you want the Padres to leave, you should get him to do it because he got the Chargers to leave. You know, that's, that's a good one. Right? Yeah, that is a good one. Uh, he, he, But the big, the one that really stuck for me is like, you know, this one-on-one Ash Street thing became such a big deal. Mm-hmm. One guy made $10 million that just happened to be a friend and a, an associate of Kevin Faulkner. And he later pleaded guilty to that, um, you know, misdemeanor. So that those are all things that won't look good in mailers. Yeah, I mean, um, this this tweet, I think this was the day that he announced officially. She's like, quote, Kevin Faulkner was a complete failure as a mayor. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's, it. that's it. And Not then a link words. to her website. Right. So she the, the knives will be out for this one. We'll see how that goes. But again, he has good name recognition. He's he, his area of the district covers a broader area than Bailey's does. Mm-hmm. And he probably has better name recognition than she does. Now, if she's able to tie him to Trump, if she's able to tie him to the scandals, if he, all this other stuff, that could be really interesting. But it all rests on people understanding that the race even happens. This is actually in the actual race. This is a normal cycle. She's running for re-election. At the same time, there's the election going forward for District 4. You've been following this a little bit. You've met with some of the candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrea, that is uh, stepping up. There's going to be a vote uh, soon. Yeah, special election is August 15th. Um, but wow, it surprised me. I mean, of so many of the people I've spoken to, um, that they're like, what? There's an election? Like, oh, <laughs> and I've even spoken to some people or, or I'm talking about this election. They're like, oh, okay, like I'm going to look into it. I'm like, no, you don't live in the district. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's quite fascinating. But, um, I think I just have a lot of questions, not a lot of like analysis just yet, but just as I've started watching and paying attention to it. Um, you know, the candidates are Councilwoman Monica Montgomery for a uh, step for City of San Diego. She represents Council District 4, um, which includes obviously part of that district. Um, there's Janessa Goldbeck. She's a veterans advocate. She's a former Marine. And then Amy Reichart. Uh, she might be a familiar name to some people. Yeah, uh, I think watch she, out. She's a private eye. Yeah. Started a lot, <laughs> started a lot um, with uh, during COVID, um, you know, anti-masking kind of movement. Yeah. She led the Reopen San Diego um, mm-hmm. group and got politically. She's as, as she uh, talks about, she got political during COVID because of everything that was happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last one's Paul McQuig. He's a he's a Republican as well as Amy. And um, he's a veteran as well. So I want to clarify something on the show a couple weeks ago. I said that um, the Police Officers Association from the city of San Diego had endorsed Amy Reichart. That's not true. Hmm. Uh, they made clear that they, they they gave her an award for um, something about her activism, but uh, they have not endorsed in that race. It It is going to be interesting to see because one group that did endorse was the BIA. The BIA endorsed Janessa Goldbeck. Now, um, a bunch of unions and others have supported uh, Monica Montgomery Steps, so she mm-hmm. has kind of that institutional labor support pretty well locked up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but very well locked up. the public safety unions and now the Business uh, Building Industry Association have supported Goldbeck. So can I lay out my thing about this? Or yes. Is that okay? Let's hear it, yeah. Uh, so one of the big stakes here is uh, development in the unincorporated areas of the county. So the county is generally in charge of most of like the soft services, right? They're not, they don't provide like fire departments. Well, they do for backcountry areas, but they don't provide a lot of the things that you think of a city providing, right? Mm -hmm. Their job is to provide healthcare for the poorest people, to provide, um, uh, you know, social welfare benefits, uh, food stamp type support, food assistance, all of these things uh, that are directed from the state and federal government to provide or uh, vector control, pollution control, all of these things are under the county. So it's not a lot of things that you hear about a lot. Like state, mm-hmm. city government is filled with discussions about parks and libraries and, um, and street, lights. You know, street lights and stuff. And they do have a role with some of that in parts that aren't governed by cities, but mostly they cover these other services that are mandated from the state or federal government. That's why it's very hard to, for people to remember who they are and what they do. Yeah. 
But one of the big decisions they have is whether people should be allowed to build things like homes in parts of the county that aren't covered by cities. Now, the county under Nathan Fletcher, who they're all trying to replace, and um, his colleagues decided that it would basically it would be very it should be very hard to build in some parts of the county that are far from city centers and and um, and you know job centers and stuff like that. Basically, the farther you are from city and and job centers and amenities. The, the more you have to do to get your development approved and the less likely it will be approved, right? Mm-hmm. Now, Janessa has basically taken the stand that like, oh, we should build a ton more in these areas outside these cities. And um, and it appears that uh, her opponents, people like Tara Lawson-Reamer, who's not her opponent, but is on the board, if she loses, this would matter there too. But, the, um, but that's the kind of thing that could change dramatically. You could uh, unlock a lot more development in these unincorporated areas if Janessa Goldbeck were to win and Tara Lawson-Reamer were to lose. So that kind of thing is what's at stake here. So. Yeah, it was really interesting to see the the pushback that that your reference to to that in a recent politics report got on you know Twitter from a lot of the housing development folks. I actually, I'll be right back. I'm going to grab the the mailers because yeah. she had an interesting way of of describing that goal in the mailer. Really. This, thank you for this mailer. So uh, uh, mailers are already flying in this uh, race. Uh, Janessa Goldbecks has a line here that says, Janessa's action plan, add housing of all kinds, not just urban high rises. Mm. Like that's a, that's an interesting way to put that, right? Like, so that's what we're talking about here is, um, you know, the kind of differentiation that's occurring of, um, you know, let people build suburban homes farther out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Send us your mailers. Yes, please. Tweet us, us pics. Send us pics, all kinds of mailers. I have a whole uh, drawer full of- Thread us <laughs> pics. Yeah, thread us pics, yeah. You know, until I started getting into into journalism, political mailers were one of the things I hated most. Recently. Oh, it's wonderful, <laughs> like archives. We should like put them away so that people can look through these in the future about what we supposedly cared about, right? Wow, we, we, that would actually That's be interesting. Beautiful. Yeah, like a running <laughs> a running sort of tab yeah. for Voice of San Diego that just collects and archives all of the political mailers people my, have received. I've taught my family, like they always want to like just toss uh-huh. them in the recycling. Mm-hmm. As like, they should, which they know every, that every sane person wants to do that when they receive a mailer from some politician. Uh, but now they've been they've faced such trauma from me yelling at them that they they do not throw that away. <laughs> they keep them in a nice little pile for you yeah. at the entrance. Uh yes, yeah, so that's there's a lot going on there. Again, the the sort of structure of the county if it if Tara Lawson Reamer were to lose that race, there would be three Republicans in charge of the county mm-hmm. and a lot of the uh, changes they've the, the Democrats have made to prioritize some of their spending on mental health and other issues would would change dramatically. Now, Kevin Faulkner says he wants to increase that sort of spending. So maybe it's not that big a difference, but um, we'll see how that all plays out. I mean, there is a world even where uh, probably not very likely, but between Monica and Janessa and Amy, where we could all of a sudden see four Republicans in charge of, of, of the county, which would be quite the sea change. And it's been interesting to watch Amy, you know, she, as was mentioned earlier, sort of like made her name standing up for you know, folks during the pandemic in her mind, pushing back against closures. But I think she's kind of in this moment where she's trying to realign herself and find new priorities and basically are just the old <laughs> conservative yeah, priorities. She spoke out against uh, the sort of uh, clean needle program, mm-hmm. that the, mm-hmm. the harm reduction program that the county um, was she talking got about. Into- Homelessness with the blo- yeah, she, the closure of the beloved yeah Starbucks yeah she in posted Hillcrest. a touching tribute to uh, to a, a Starbucks that closed in the Hillcrest recently mm-hmm. yeah well we'll see how that all plays out this is going to be uh, the the future of the county is at stake and there's a lot to be discussed about it. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Join culture creator Remel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. 
Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. One of the best stories that Andy Keats did um, several years ago was uh, about SANDAG, the San Diego Association of Governments, and how kind of wild it was that all of their votes were unanimous. Like there's all these different cities with Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, and they always voted perfectly unanimous. And to him and to me, it seemed just like interesting and maybe indicative that there was just a lot of backroom discussions going on, a lot of deal-making that they protected somehow from the requirements of public meetings and public decision-making. And also just like what a triumph in a way it was for the executives there at the staff to be able to pull that off and what that meant, though, about the decision-making, the priorities that occurred, right? And so uh, later we realized like, well, there was a a lot of kind of... um, let's say, not (laughs) honest accounting about what was coming and deal-making and promising of things that just were not based in reality. Mm -hmm. So now you uh, did a story this week. I I, I thought it was very interesting about San Diego Unified School District. There are five trustees there. Mm -hmm. And uh, a couple of them are brand new. And they seem to be in a similar situation. Not that they're doing anything wrong, but they are voting perfectly unanimous. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, as you can probably imagine, being an education reporter, uh, watching school board meetings is is a big part of my job. Um, you know, I'm 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 just like a normal type dude, so I I don't really take any joy in that. But you know, I I bear the cross for you for you, dear readers. Um, <laughs> just, just called yourself a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? I'm a martyr for yeah. of school board meetings. Yeah, hey, yeah. Hey, I, no do it, I do. Yeah, it I'm learning hard. a lot about Jacob. The today. egos on this, uh, like... on, the egos in our our co-host world is they're they're starting to reach wasn't it, for the ceiling. Wasn't yeah. it just the other day that you told us that we have to have striking degrees of confidence and able to write with in, in order to write with authority i'm just trying to fill those no, i'm with you yeah at those least, clown shoes that you've that you've laid out for us you know at least pretend it yeah exactly <laughs> um but anyway what makes watching meetings and school board meetings in particular uh especially tough is when they are are boring and san diego unified's meetings are pretty boring that's not because there's not interesting things going on that's not because you know certain folks on the board don't know how to spin a yarn or, or speak publicly. It's just that, uh, everything always seems very hunky dory, you know, um, lots of school board meetings, especially since the pandemic, there's this like degree of spice, you know, uh, things can get divisive. There are split decisions. Uh, sometimes things are voted down and that's kind of why San Diego, San Diego Unified's board really stands out as this kind of counter narrative to school boards and disarray story. Uh, and, Specifically, this year, the school board has passed every single item unanimously, which is pr- pretty pretty interesting and shocking. But what was also interesting and shocking is that when I went back into the minutes, this it became very clear instantly that this was not a new phenomenon. Back All the way back to 2020, there have only been four votes that were not unanimous, and only one of them uh, was only one vote. Uh, one item was... Was was, was that Sharon Whitehurst paint? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Well, there were a couple Sharon Whitehurst pains. There were a couple, but but lots of Sharon Whitehurst pain in there. Yeah, yeah. But the what was interesting also was the one item that was not approved actually would have been a pretty functional change to the way the board voted that could have brought more split decisions. Uh, it was this this and you know it was a sort of a messaging vote. It was a, a you know this resolution that a student trustee brought that would have essentially had the board. Uh, endorse this bill that would have made student trustees full voting members and given them uh, the right to vote on everything. And because right now they they essentially don't have full voting rights, and oftentimes their votes are just listed as like student board member concurred. It doesn't count towards the actual kind of real yeah. vote total. So one of the interesting parts about this is the the vote recently about the budget and about this the the raises for teachers um so we'll get into that for a second but i think it's it's easy to get along and vote with everything if you don't have to make a a major sacrifice and decide which of those things 
which trade-offs to make, mm-hmm. right? If you just discount the need for trade-offs, <laughs> then they're they're not <laughs> difficult to decide, right? Yeah. So so in this case, describe the 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 raise that went through. Yeah. So essentially, you know, there was this long, long, long contract negotiating process that had been delayed for a long time. Essentially, they they just couldn't reach a deal with the teachers union as to a new a new contract for teachers. What they ended up passing was this this um, package that that uh, the Union Tribune has reported will cost five hundred million dollars and include these really significant raises. First, a ten percent raise that is retroactive back to last year, and then a five percent raise going forward. Um, and they did all of this. So, while, just to be clear, when you do a raise retroactively, you're just you're handing out a significant amount of money. You are, and then that raise that the five percent that they get in the future is on top of that ten percent retroactive raise. So they're getting a raise on top of a raise, essentially. Uh-huh. And you know, while that's all well and good, board members said this needed to be done to in order to recruit and retain teachers and blah 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 blah. But they simultaneously passed this this contract that that included huge raises while they were projecting these huge deficits in in future years. And so you can imagine that at any other district, this would most likely be a pretty divisive and controversial vote. But again, 5-0, everything was hunky-dory. Everyone seemed to be having a good time. You know, while at that meeting, they did acknowledge that it could look to some people like there was a disconnect between these two things. Uh, they also, again, fell back on the fact that that they felt that this was really, really necessary in order to get the highest quality teachers, highest quality staff, highest quality administrators. Um, and ultimately, when I spoke to some folks, I, I spoke to uh, Becca Williams, who was a um, candidate who ran against Cody Pedersen in, in sub-district C uh, for the school board. She kind of placed this all into one thing, right? For her, she believes the school board's main sort of ideological drive is this allegiance to labor, to organize labor. Or to take care of the teachers. To yeah. take care of the teachers, yeah. But but specifically, you know, she cited that um, for many years, um, pretty much all of the, the folks on the board now were, were supported uh, – quite a bit in those elections, in their elections to reach office by the teachers union and, and who, who donated gobs of money to ensure that they had the finances to send out mailers and make calls and do X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Uh, and, and so while there are these sorts of, um, you know, criticisms of, of the way the board votes, the board is, is says that things are, are going great, you know, for them, it, uh, the unanimity is sort of this symptom of just what the voters decided. Yeah. You know? And uh, so they are projecting a $128 million deficit next mm-hmm. year, $182 million deficit. Well, it, in 24-25. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so next school year, once the school year starts in August. Right. So um, again, like it's easy to get along when you don't have to decide like how you're going to close that budget, like layoffs versus cut music or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. that's... That's when you might start to see some of this uh, diversity show up, um, or um, or they somehow punted again. So we'll see. But uh, I appreciate you digging into that and, and following as close as you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Voice San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in Greater Little Italy. The extended parts of Greater Little Italy that extend past what might be considered. Little Italy's greater Little Italy. This is an uncertain time for local news. I cannot overstate that. We have been transparent about our own struggles, uh, as have others, closing out the fiscal year. And now is one of the most critical times to ensure institutions like ours are stable and sustainable. We do that by getting donors and individual subscribers like you. If you never donated or think you can increase your contribution, you can do that now at vosd.org slash give. That's vosd.org slash give. You can also support us by subscribing to our newsletters. We have a great collection of newsletters featuring the voices of our journalists. See them all at vosd.org slash newsletters. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Andrea Lopez Villafania is our Managing Editor. Jacob McQuinney's Education Reporter. Nate John is our producer. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.